Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray and we have uh, another great show lined up for you with a scientist doing some fascinating seabird research. With me by Squadcast, of course, is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies. Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, introduce our guest, Rob Surian, Dr. Rob Surian. He's with the uh, National Geographic and Atmospheric Administration, the Alk Bay Laboratory uh, near Juneau, Alaska. Uh, Rob, welcome to our program. Thanks. It's nice to be here. I know that you've been studying seabird for quite some time. Uh, we knew each other in Alaska when we were both up there working on the spill, but uh, perhaps you could give a background uh, to our listeners about how you got into biology and the, the kind of things that got got you interested in doing what you do and, and a little bit of rundown on the kinds of research you've done. Sure. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. So I've been in, um, I guess, first interested in wildlife as a child. Um, had always had a strong interest in uh, fishing and some hunting, but also a little bird watching too, and just uh, being out in nature. Um, and also had some family members who were uh, commercial in the commercial fishing industry. So I spent a, f a fair amount of time out on the ocean too. My first direction during college was in terrestrial wildlife biology, forest bird studies and mammal studies. And but it wasn't long that I couldn't stand being away from the ocean. And that's why I directed some of my studies after that and interest to um, marine birds and mammals at the time and, and marine fish. And so after um, kind of to pursue that direction, I uh, went to uh, get my master's degree at Moss Landing Marine Laboratories in Moss Landing, California. And that's when I started studying seabirds and marine mammals. I mostly focused on marine mammals during that time. Um, and then I really got interested in the ability to use these upper trophic level species, like especially seabirds, to study what's going on in the marine environment, mostly because I was interested in birds, but also you can see so much of their life compared to other marine animals. So soon after uh, that work, I always wanted to work in Alaska. So moved, I got a job and moved up to Alaska. And that's when I first started working with Exxon Valdez Oil Spill Trustee Council funded post Exxon Valdez oil spill studies that were focused on seabirds and forage fish for the particular project I was on to look at uh, what was limiting recovery of some of those primarily fishing birds after the oil spill, but also put in the context of why they were declining in the first place, even before the spill for some species. And then after that, I really, um, that again, that focus on ecosystem studies got me super interested in doing more research. And so I went to Oregon State University after that, decided I wanted to pursue a career in research and would be uh, helped in that front on to obtain a, a doctoral degree so I could run my own research programs. That's what I did. So I went to Oregon State University and that's when I first started studying albatrosses. And at the time, uh, there was a focus on uh, fisheries bycatch with albatrosses in Alaska, and very little work had been done, and we knew very little about where the albatrosses were ranging throughout the North Pacific, especially an endangered species, the short-tailed albatross. So I put together a project to study uh, short-tailed albatross with some colleagues at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and then some collaborators in Japan, and for the next boy. 16 years, I was really focused on 
a variety of seabird studies, but a, a lot of albatross studies. What I do now, I'm back up in Alaska and uh, working on ecosystem studies um, with less of an emphasis on seabirds, but still they're a part of, of some of the data we integrate with the studies we do. How many different kinds of albatrosses are there? There's actually some um, uncertainty in the taxonomy, but there's around uh, 21 to 23 species of albatrosses globally. And we have three here in the North Pacific and uh, one in the Central Pacific that are all of the same genus, Phobastria. The remaining ones are in the Southern Hemisphere, and there are no uh, albatrosses in in the North Atlantic other than uh, vagrants that move. No, there are none that breed in the North Atlantic. Uh, historically, over time, there used to be geologic time. There was, but there are no longer. The distribution of them is really kind of interesting to me that there are so many different species in the Southern Oceans and none in the North Atlantic and only three up here in the North Pacific. Do you know why that is? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> there's several ideas why that might be the case. For one is in the Southern Hemisphere, there's all these um, very remote islands that really didn't have much or any human habitation in the past. And so there's some perspectives that... Um, there was these um, available nesting habitat without predators, without land predators, so mammals, um, but also without human predators too. And also it's an area where they can diversify given that really, um, it's one of the windiest places on earth, right? The roaring furious fifties. So um, that was really um, so just conducive to albatross uh, distribution, movement and speciation in those areas. Well, maybe it'd be good before we get too far in the weeds to just talk a little bit about an al what an albatross is, how they're different from other seabirds, and what their life, their lifestyle and life history is all about. Yeah, I think for albatrosses, one of the things that sets them apart, of course, is first their size. They're much larger than any other birds. Even the smallest of albatrosses are bigger than your, your basic uh, seagull that you'd see along the, uh, or any species of seagull that you'd see along the coast there. Also, they are um, ocean wanderers in that they use uh, a flight strategy known as dynamic soaring. So they're pretty large and heavy bodied birds, but they have a really long wingspan. So uh, for, depending on the species, up to eight to 10 feet wingspan. Um, but also very narrow wings. So they're, they'd be, if you're thinking about comparison with air, um, aircraft, they'd be very similar, similar to a glider, you know, with very long, narrow wings and the ability to, to soar fairly effortlessly over um, large expanses of the ocean with uh, less energy expenditure. Um, they also only lay uh, one egg. So I kind of, as a um, comparison, I mentioned they're, they're more like a mammal than a bird when you think of life history. So they can only lay one egg, raise one young per year at the very most. For some species, it usually takes at least six or seven months, some a full year to actually incubate that egg and raise the chick. So they uh, can't, some species cannot have a chick every year. So they're very slow to reproduce. They're also late maturing. They often don't begin breeding until they're four or five, sometimes as late as eight to 10 years old. And they can be very long lived too. So the 
The uh, oldest known wild bird is a laysan albatross um, known as Wisdom out on Midway Island that is 71 years old um, this year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A minimum of 71, right? Yes. They don't really know how old she was when she was banded. Right. Yeah. Wow. Laysans, I think, are the are one of those species that can breed as young as five years old. Is that right? Right. Yep. Yes. We have seen some breed as early as three years old, but they're often not successful at that young age. And it's often a male that would breed at that young age, too. They mate for life. Um, they will find another mate if a mate is lost. They also is there's both parents equally take care of the um, incubating the egg and also rearing the chick. So it's um, a pretty complex strategy for them to, especially for a newly paired a couple of albatrosses to um, coordinate the incubation shifts, chick rearing shifts to successfully rear a chick, which is why it seems to take, you know, several years sometimes before they're actually successful. And, and the older individuals are generally more successful in rearing, rearing their chick. Ecologists tend to kind of divide animals into broad groups, being those you know, uh, small, fast reproducing, short-lived species, and then the longer-lived, low reproducing. So obviously, the albatrosses fit in that latter category, right? Absolutely. Yeah, wisdom is the oldest known wild bird, like you said, and I think I've read that no one really knows what the upper age limit is for albatrosses. What's the status of that? Do we have any idea how long they can live? No, not really. And that's in terms of what I mentioned, the benefits of studying seabirds. There's so much information we can gather from them. But one of them um, that we lack is age. We There is no way to age a bird um, effectively. And mm -hmm. so the only reason why we know the age of wisdom was because a biologist, Chandler Robbins, banded that bird in 1956, I think it was. And like you said, it was a breeding adult at that time. So it could have been anywhere from three to eight years old or even more when he first banded the bird. Yeah. So that puts a minimum age, but she could also have been 15 or 20 years old by that time. Like you said, there's no real way to tell how old an albatross is. Exactly. Which is a remarkable, you know, <laughs> impediment. It is. We yeah, the only way we can age them is is through banding. And you have the bander either has to, the band has to outlive the bird, or like in Wisdom's case, you, you the Fish and Wildlife Service has continually to uh, reband the bird over time. A lot of birds, uh, if they breed and put a lot of energy into breeding, uh, sometimes it affects their survival in the following year or two. Do we have any evidence about that issue with albatrosses? Uh, there, there is quite a bit of information on stress hormones and survival consequences of different breeding strategies under different conditions and in different environments. And uh, you do see some situations, even with albatrosses, where even though they are generally slow to reproduce, late to mature, and long-lived, under certain conditions, they do, um, the same species living in a different environment can show differences in survival rate and reproductive success. So there, there's certainly some variability associated with the environment that they're living in. Right. Yeah. So when they're brooding their eggs, uh, they must have to uh, feed them fairly frequently. Uh, so that limit their, you know, they, they're famous for roaming thousands of miles, but when they've got a, 
uh, a brooding chick, uh, I imagine that they some are more limited to where they go to feed. Yeah, this would be a good time, I think, to explain a little bit about how how they manage this. You know, the remarkable way that they uh, cooperatively raise a chick and forage across the ocean. Right. That's um, that's one of the most difficult times to actually to coordinate when the chick during that brooding period. So it's usually the first couple weeks um, or more and stuff for the larger species. But after the chick uh, hatches from the egg. So that's at that point, the chick is um, it can't thermoregulate on its own. It needs to have a parent present. Uh, and so, and also since um, it's small, it can't be fed large amounts of food. So it has to be fed more frequently. And, and this is true for actually pretty much any bird, <laughs> seabird, um, that brooding period is a pretty critical time period, um, just like for young fish where they need uh, food readily. And so that's right. That's a particular difficult time that the, the two parents have to coordinate their foraging strategies and they can't range as far to get food. They need food closer to the colony. So that's a situation where you might see where a colony that's located closer to its food source has the birds are more successful at keeping their chicks alive during that critical period than another colony where they have to roam further. Um, and then as a chick gets older and can thermoregulate, can maintain its own body temperature, has its you know downy, down covered, and then especially as it gets older and it's fully feathered, the adults can leave the chick for days to a week by itself while they go out and forage for it. And they're both out um, foraging and bringing food back to the chick. And what's the timing on this? I mean, uh, they're like the Laysan albatrosses and, and the black-footed are returning to their nests right around now, right? And then it takes, how long does it take to get settled in, lay an egg, and then incubate that egg before they actually even have a chick to feed. Right, yeah, the, the, most albatrosses are um, nesting during the winter time, even, even, um, here in the, well, in, it's true in the Northern Hemisphere. It's all during our Northern, northern Hemisphere winters when albatrosses are breeding. Um, and so uh, for the Hawaiian albatross, like the Laysan and black-footed albatross, they are returning to the colonies in late fall and they're laying um, eggs during December and uh, in January and uh, chicks are hatching out. And then by July, August, the chicks are, are going to be fledging. Well, maybe even some in June, it, there's a little bit of asynchrony, but um, for the most part, it's about, uh, and, and that, Timing returning back to the colony is critical too um, for that pair to um, kind of reinitiate their pair bond because as far as we know, they do not spend, the two parents do not spend their non-breeding season together at sea. They go separate ways from what tracking data we that we know of. And in some places, the females and the males do segregate um, at sea, uh, completely different portions of the ocean. Um, so they return back to the colony. They have to renew their pair bonds. So that timing has to be, you know, coordinated. Then they uh, need to mate, fertilize an egg. And then once the egg is laid, it's on the order of uh, roughly two months, depending on the albatross size for incubation. Brooding periods, a couple weeks. And then chick rearing is another, like, you know, another three to four months after that. So is the female tending uh, 
the chick and the male goes off and feeds and brings food back or do they switch off uh, incubating? Right. They, they switch off. Sometimes okay. the um, male ends up with the longest incubation shift um, because uh, the female, after using it's all these reserves to generate the age, which is a very large egg, and I, um, because this is their strategy to put all this energy and effort into the one egg that has lots of reserves for the chick to hatch out with. Um, so she'll often lay the egg, incubate for a bit, and then fly off for a longer at-sea foraging shift than the uh, while the male's on the egg. I've read that the, the male can be sitting on that egg for a week to 10 days after the female flies off to kind of refuel. Because first she's got to fuel herself back up before she can start foraging for the for the chick, right? And exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It can be a couple of weeks sometimes. You know, it's a remarkable relationship that they have because, as you said, they mate for life, basically, uh, which can be a really long time. We don't even know how long that can be. And yet they hardly ever see each other. Right. They, like you said, they, they apparently split up when they're not breeding and even when they are breeding they actually only intersect with each other for a very short period of time when they come back to start nesting and then once that egg is laid they just kind of they're like pro wrestlers tapping each other on the shoulder okay off you go <laughs> nice to see you bye so it's a really interesting kind of long-term relationship but their their coordination is extreme right uh, talk a little bit about that you know, they're out at sea foraging for a whole year and then they return to the island where they nest. Right. Yeah. And so um, thinking about our North Pacific albatrosses. So, you know, in the North Pacific, we have the short-tailed albatross, the lace albatross and the black-footed albatrosses. And the short-tailed albatross nests only in the uh, Western Pacific on uh, islands off the coasts of Japan. As far as you know, historically, that's only where they've nested in the North Pacific. Um, we find that they are, they range you know, from previous records, from observations at sea, from bird watchers and fishermen, but also from the satellite tracking data that where we put transmitters on the birds and track them throughout their range. Uh, they range widely throughout the North Pacific and occur along the, the west coast of the US too, California, Oregon, Washington coast. They were used to be far more abundant, but they're less, um, you know, their populations are less than 1% of what they were historically. So that, that species is recovering in the North Pacific, thankfully. It's got a long ways to go, but it's recovering. So the other two species that are more abundant, the Laysan and the Blackfoots, they um, primarily nest in the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands and some on the mainland Hawaiian Islands too. Um, and, uh, you know, it's 98% of their population or so is, on, is in the Hawaiian Islands. So those birds are have some of the longest foraging trips that we've seen because some of those birds in the Hawaiian Islands are foraging up in the up in Alaska, um, up along the Aleutian Islands, the Gulf of Alaska, even along the west coast um, of the along Oregon Washington coasts, um, even during the chickering period. So, so once they finish rearing the chicks, then they depart the colony for several months. And during that time period, they're both out at sea, they'll undergo a molt. Um, replacing feathers are, is costly. They might undergo a partial molt or a full molt. And that, so it's body feathers and flight feathers. 
And that will often determine whether they can breed again the following year. So even our smaller North Pacific mm. albatrosses, the Laysans and Blackfoots, maybe 25, 20 to 25% of them um, likely take a sabbatical each year, take an off year to recover those costs from reproduction, maybe go through a full molt of new feathers, new flight feathers, um, and then return back to the colony in, in the following year, which in that case, right, they, the, the pair has to meet back at the colony again. <laughs> so when they, when they molt, they don't molt when they reproduce, is that correct? Right, yeah, there might be a small amount of molting occurring during the uh, reproductive period, but primarily yeah. it's during the non-breeding season. So those f four, you know, three to four months, or if they take the sabbatical, you know, they have lots of time to molt. But it, from what we see, it seems like the vast majority of molt is occurring in the um, summer and uh, um, early fall. They must do a continuous molt. They can't do a catastrophic molt or they'd be flightless in the ocean. <laughs> Right. Yes, it's a continuous molt, so they remain. Um, so they replace just certain flight feathers at a time and body feathers too. Um, but we have seen some of the work we did out in the Aleutian Islands. The birds weren't flightless, but we were shocked at how many feathers were being molted at any one time. You know, for example, seeing birds with maybe just three of the ten primary feathers <laughs> fully grown. No um, kidding. Which is just was just shocking at that time. And we're not exactly sure why that's the case. Um, the most likely explanation was in areas like the Aleutian Islands, where they maybe don't have to travel as far to find food. We found them staying within those Aleutian passes for weeks to a month at a time. Uh -huh. They didn't have to travel very far to get food. So they could, un I guess, be a little bit more aggressive potentially in their molt in some of those areas. Huh, that's remarkable, yeah. So they could, because they've got abundant food resources, they don't have to expend as much energy flying and hunting for food, so they can just blow off a bunch of feathers and replace them all at once and be done with it. It's interesting because it sounds like uh, that only happens sometimes and in some places. So it's it's interesting that different birds have different strategies with the molt, uh, molting. That's I don't know of other kinds of birds that do that, where some birds do a heavy molt and some birds do a continuous molt. It's usually one strategy or the other. Like eagles, you can age an eagle because they're constantly replacing feathers. Right. And so you can, you can really get an accurate age just by looking at which new feathers they've got. But it sounds like the albatrosses, we don't know that much about their molts. Right, yeah, the vast majority of work is on the islands looking at, you know, which feathers had been replaced from one year to the next. And yeah, there, there certainly have been some scientists that have done some really nice work on uh, molt strategies and albatrosses. And we've kind of followed, piggybacked on their efforts when we've done some of the uh, molt scoring uh, when we've captured birds at sea. Not only capturing the birds at sea, but also some of the satellite tracking data that we analyzed and now and others have analyzed too, saw these periods of very little movement. You know, albatrosses, they have this reputation of always being on the wing, always traveling, you know, long distances, and they're fully capable of that. And that's often what you most, yeah, most often see. But there were times during these track, you know, these year round tracking periods, especially post season, where we see that the birds were not moving much at all, very little 
uh, very kind of confined in their movements over a short uh, period of time that um, we think is just strongly related to the molt period for, and like you said, depending on, we don't know enough about whether birds will go to different areas when they choose to molt, you know, or go through different um, degrees or, you know, how extensive a molt that they might um, intend to go through. That's one thing we have not been able to really get a, um, be able to collect data and understand quite yet. You know, you bring up these transmitter studies and those, as I understand it, are a fairly recent technological development. And before we had that capability, we could really only study them for that relatively brief part of their lives when they were on the breeding grounds. Is that right? Uh, it was extraordinarily difficult to study a seabird that spends its life cruising around the open ocean. Yeah, that's correct. So we knew a lot about what was occurring at the colonies and with our, our what we knew about their at sea distribution and behavior was just uh, the snapshots of observers, out scientists, researchers out and bird watchers and fishermen and just mariners mm -hmm. out on the ocean collecting information about their distributions and also their behaviors at sea. So there was a fair amount of work at sea studies that have been conducted observationally, looking at flight dynamics, speed and distribution and abundance. Um, but right, the, the ability to track albatrosses individually and look at their movements over time really opened up our eyes to how, um, how extensive their annual movement patterns are. And even during the breeding season, how much traveling they actually do. Yeah, I think it'd be great if you could talk a little bit about that and explain to some of the listeners that some of the numbers are just staggering, you know, how much movement these birds are capable of. Right, yeah. So I think one of the most shocking movement patterns is from our, for albatrosses in general, um, I, I guess a couple I would highlight is one is certainly from our um, North Pacific albatrosses, the Laysan and Blackfoots that are out in the Hawaiian Islands. So one thing that's unique about those two species is that they're breeding at very low latitudes. So in tropical, subtropical habitats. Uh, so those two species and the uh, waved albatross that's in the Galapagos, which is a few degrees south of the equator, and then also the um, short-tailed albatross, which nests in the Japanese or the islands off of southern Japan, um, are these very low-latitude breeding albatrosses. All the, the albatrosses in the southern hemisphere are pretty much all high-latitude, you know, subarctic breeders. So one thing that's very unique about that, as far as foraging for the um, Hawaiian albatrosses, is that they're in this subtropical oligotrophic you know kind of relatively low productivity region of the ocean and they are traveling um, they do some foraging around those islands and maybe a hundred to a couple hundred kilometers away from those islands but um, when their chicks are old enough to thermoregulate and both adults are out foraging they'll travel you know thousands of kilometers up into uh, the Aleutian Islands, Gulf of Alaska, and also into the, um, along the U.S. West Coast, you know, uh, Oregon, Washington, California, feed off the coast of California, Oregon, Washington, and then go back to the colony in Hawaii and feed the chick with the food that it's obtained. Wow. 
<laughs> it's amazing. Isn't that incredible? We go offshore from Fort Bragg, and it's not uncommon to run into black-footed albatrosses just five or six miles offshore here. And you just watch this bird fly and realize it just flew over here from maybe Midway Island, right. <laughs> 2,500 miles of open ocean, just yeah. to gorge on food and then fly back and hork it up for the chick. How do they do that? How do they... I mean, how do they carry that food all the way back across the ocean to feed a chick? Right. So some of those foraging trips can be on the order of days to a week to two weeks for some of them. And there was, um, I think, if you look at the total track distance, it's for some of these individuals, like 10 to 14,000 kilometers over a single trip. And um, <laughs> and so uh, they rely on the wind in terms of being highly efficient when when we've looked at wind patterns relative to movement that some of their large-scale movements then you see where they are um, more uh, sedentary when under low wind conditions more active and and do these longer flights when they have a tailwind or a quartering tailwind um, to move in the direction they um, want to go of course they can't always wait for favorable winds but especially when they're in the trade winds where they don't have a choice to fly either in with the winds or against the winds or quartering with the winds um, but they also so what they produce um, in their um, well which the seabirds don't have a crop or, or I shouldn't say they, a gizzard they have what's referred to as the crop or the proventricles a part of the esophagus where they they store the food so they can, it doesn't go into down into their stomach, but they store it in that portion of their esophagus where they can acquire large amounts of food and it breaks down into oil. So it's referred to as stomach oil. They mean, Oh, it's not coming from the stomach, but, um, uh. but they regurgitate back to the chicks on colony is a mixture of some of the uh, fresh food, fresher fish that they caught most recently, but also highly concentrated um, lipid-rich oil that um, they have, um, that they're passing off to the chicks to provide this very, you know, high energy, high fat, nu um, nutritious uh, food source for the chicks. This might be a good time as we're talking about traveling, you know, where these things, where these birds travel and so forth, to talk a little bit about the the way the wings are put together and the efficiency of the, the flight and the energetics and so forth, because it's, uh, as I understand it, pretty absolutely amazing. Right, yeah. So there have been some um, really interesting studies on the morphology of albatrosses. So their shape and the wing loading, so with their body weight to wing area ratios, right? So you could compare them to, say, for example, a gull, uh, you know, some type a species of seagull, um, you know, western gulls that are common along your coast, where you see they um, can, you know, there's a little bit of wind, or even without much wind, they can flap their wings and take up right off the ground, right? They don't have to run, they don't need a runway, <laughs> they can lift right off the ground. Uh, kind of the difference, if you're familiar with waterfowl, you know, a, a puddle duck versus a diving duck and being able to uh, just uh, flap their wings and take flight right away. Well, albatrosses can't do that. So they have high wing loading, meaning they have large body mass, you know, for wing area. 
Um, but those wings are really long and narrow. So on some of the um, albatross colonies, you see these runways, <laughs> essentially, for the birds to take off. And they've often referred to as uh, goonie birds, right? Because they're awkward and clumsy on land um, because they have these long wings. And without wind, they are very clumsy. <laughs> uh, but when, when their wind's available and they're out uh, and there's out on the open ocean and many people who have been at sea, uh, where when even when you're in a storm and this, you see these albatrosses flying effortlessly in the wind, um, they certainly don't invoke the name of a goonie bird. You know, they're highly <laughs> exceptionally graceful when they have the wind to power them. So they also have this uh, feature. Uh, it's kind of a tendon in their wings that allows their wings to kind of lock out. So they ex extend their wings to full length and it, it can um, kind of, uh, without muscle effort, lock the wings in a gliding position. And then, so the albatrosses don't generally fly very high. Um, usually 100 feet at the most above. Um, they certainly can go higher than that, no doubt. But a lot of their flight uh, occurs within, you know, 100 feet or so of the water um, surface. And it's this dynamic soaring of uh, climbing and descending close to the water surface um, as they go over long distances. Um, and that's where, for that dynamic soaring, you need the, the weight um, to be able to uh, push the bird through those different wind profiles, you know, near the surface of the ocean, and also to um, be able to fly and navigate and uh, under really high wind conditions. So when it's super windy, a bird that um, doesn't have that weight to push it along on the narrow wings um, would have very a lot of difficult flying and moving long distances explain dynamic soaring i'm not sure i really understand it yeah dynamic soaring is where they are you're continually gaining and losing altitude over time so it's a it's a or almost like a sine wave right or a cosine wave right where the bird is accelerating off from the ocean surface up to like you know maybe 30 40 feet above the ocean surface and then continually accelerating down and then they just continue that pattern of up and down motion, just like a, you know, a, a sine or a cosine wave over the surface of the ocean. And lots of times you see them with their wingtip right above the surface of the ocean, right? Kind of making that turn. And it's very rare that you see them just gliding level like a pelican, you know, mm -hmm. or like a group of pelicans just going, staying level and just gliding along the surface or above the surface. You rarely see albatrosses doing that. They're just not designed for it. So they, they ever go other than directly into the wind? They go must go directly into the wind to take off, but then when they get up to 30 or 40 feet, can they turn and yeah. go, you know, uh, the, any direction, or they generally stay with the wind direction? Yeah, that's exactly what they do, but they can go any direction. It's just that yeah. when they go upwind, they often, with the dynamic soaring, it's more like tacking, like an, <laughs> a right. uh, sailboat. They, yeah, they rarely, yeah. I mean, they certainly can, but they rarely flap directly into the wind. You know, there's a, uh, a Laysan uh, albatross um, breeding colony in Kauai at mm -hmm. Kilauea Reserve. And uh, it's kind of on a downslope towards the ocean. Right. And the onshore wind is pretty constant. 
So they they use that as, you know they, they kind of take off into the wind with a little bit of it's like a little bit like a hang glider you know they get up in a in a place and they run a little bit and they run into the wind downhill and then all of a sudden they're into the air and, and uh, but they don't the ones there seem like they're reproducing pretty well but they've got a a fence around the uh, the colony to keep the rats and dogs and whatever else out and away from the uh, developing chicks and eggs. Yeah, this might be a good time to talk about their conservation status. Uh, I've I've read that albatrosses, as a family, are the most threatened group of birds in the world uh, because basically all of them are under some kind of threat. Right, that's that's correct. And the two main reasons for that has have been exactly what was just mentioned: the um, introduction of um, species on islands. So whether they're uh, predators that actually, um, you know, consume albatross chicks or eggs, or um, even some, in some cases, herbivores that are eating the vegetation that destabilizes the um, um, habitat that the albatrosses are nesting on. Um, and then also, um, in some areas, fisheries bycatch has been a huge issue um, in terms of, uh, you know, albatrosses are surface feeders. They can't dive uh, much more than their body length and neck reaching below the surface of the ocean. So just several feet, maybe as deep as, you know, in some cases, 10 feet, if they, some of the smaller albatrosses can kind of really push themselves <laughs> under, the, under the surface of the water, but it's very much a surface feeding animals. And so um, they certainly are obtaining food, on, you know, through by foraging on their own, um, but also they're opportunistic scavengers. So when other predators, killer whales, uh, other species of marine mammals, you know, seals, sea lions, other whales are feeding, um, the albatrosses will take advantage of that and feed with the, um, you know, scraps or um, fish, small fish that are dead at the surface or floating at the surface of squid. Um, but that also uh, pertains to um, fishing vessels too. You know, there's, if there's uh, food being discarded by fishing vessels, then albatrosses are going to go after that food. And uh, that's caused some um, large um, declines in some species, especially in the Southern Hemisphere where they, get inter they interact with, especially longline vessels get, get hooked. Um, so those, those, and then, yeah, they'll go those, right up to a, a boat that's putting out a, a long line and they'll yes. just try to grab the bait right off the hooks and get it, caught. Exactly. Yeah. So they're, they're trying to grab the baited hooks as they're being, as they're being deployed. And sometimes they're successful getting the bait, but some, but also get hooked too. Um, and then the other side of the two on the islands is just human persecution too, you know, hunting by, by humans. Yeah, that, that's what almost took out the short-tailed albatross, right? Correct. Yeah, so the short-tailed albatross was uh, hunted to, is, essentially, as far as the breeding birds, to um, they were completely hunted um, till there were no more breeding birds occurring on any of the breeding islands. Um, and they were used, you know, the feathers were used for a variety of um, ornamental purposes, riding, you know, instruments, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, also for decorations. Um, and the oil was used, um, the fat rendered, um, the meat for feed, et cetera. 
Um, so that so how short tail albatrosses were on the order of millions as far as we could tell in the North Pacific. They were thought to be extinct in the late 1940s, but then a small group of breeders returned to an island in Japan, Torishima, and began breeding. And so that's a situation where the lifestyle or the life history of albatrosses actually saved them because these birds will spend years at sea. Once they fledge as chicks, they'll spend years at sea. In fact, we had one bird that we tracked put a tag on as a uh, fledgling and tracked that bird for five years before it actually came back to the colony. Um, and um, so those birds that were at sea, that were non-breeding birds returned, eventually started returning back to the colony. And that's where the um, our short-tailed albatross population now has um, just re uh, regrown from that, those few individuals coming back. It, it might have been less than 100 birds total. We don't really know exactly how many were remaining at sea. How do those fishing interactions work, like for the short-tailed albatross in the North Pacific? Because I could imagine those trawlers with all the bycatch they release uh, might be really attractive. You know, they've got a lot of dead fish floating around the, mm-hmm. the, that vessel as they, they steam and sort their catch. Uh, that would be really attractive to the albatross. So how do they actually, do they, does that represent a threat to them? Are they going to get caught by the nets or is it the long lines more that we have to worry about? Or what's, what's the exact interaction, the nature of that interaction? Right. It's, it's been both, uh, primarily long lines were the main focus because there was uh, definitely more birds that were killed by long line than any other type of fishery, um, and um, at least in the past 20, 30 years, you know, there were the high seas drift nets that um, are no longer being used, but those were a problem too. But um, right. so the long lines being that, so that um, as we mentioned that when the baited hooks and at these boats are deploying, you know, millions of hooks um, hmm. at, at fleet wide are being deployed off the boat, then the birds are attracted to that and trying to steal the baited hook. So the, the most successful um, deterrence or um, kind of conservation efforts have been the streamer lines um, that are flown behind the boat over those, lo- those long lines as they're being deployed so that the birds are scared away from that area where the hooks are near the surface. So once the hooks get down to about six feet, to, um, below the surface, the albatross can't dive down and get them anymore. So that work um, actually in Alaska has been a highly successful um, effort um, over the past couple of decades in reducing seabird bycatch in the longline That's fisheries. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. very inventive. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then with the trawl fisheries, um, some of that management and mitigation has been where um, the the discards, and, and it's not just for the birds, but for other purposes, the discards are ground up and just dispersed from the boat. Um, some boats are full retention of um, discards. For example, um, some in Alaska for economic purposes, but some down in the Southern Hemisphere solely for conservation of albatrosses. When they're fishing around some of the main breeding islands, the boats cannot discharge the um, any discards, any offal um, from there. They have to retain it and take it back to port or dump it elsewhere beyond where they're fishing. Um, mm-hmm. But with the trawl, um, there's less interaction, but there still is some. 
um, where the birds tend to not get caught in the nets as much as they end up uh, those long wings and soaring around the the tow cables. They get um, they end up injuring themselves hitting the the um, large tow cables on the uh, on the trawls. Wow. Yeah, I guess their their habitat would not prepare them for you know, flying around obstacles. There just aren't any out there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So again, with the mitigation work in the North Pacific and elsewhere is to not discharge when, um, when you're towing a net. Just to keep the albatrosses from congregating around the boat. Yeah. And other birds too. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Well, albatrosses land on sailboats and so forth. Cause I've seen, I've seen some uh, videos of people sailing across the Pacific and having seabirds kind of land on the superstructure and stay there for a while. I don't know. Is that what albatrosses would do? Yeah, generally not for albatrosses because it's a hard platform for them to land on and take off from. Right. Yeah. Usually if you no see runway. an albatross on a boat, it's because it got tangled up in something and, and needed to be brought aboard. And, and in a lot of cases, you can release them um, if they're not you know um, seriously injured. Right. Well, I still have yet to see uh, a short-tailed albatross out here I, all my pelagic birding buddies have seen one uh, long, over the years and i just haven't been on that on the boat at that time when one came by uh but i gather they are recovering at a pretty good clip right there's several thousand of them now uh right yeah they're so again with that life history you know there's it takes a while for them to recover um so yeah, that's a good question. The latest population estimates are, so there's over a thousand breeding pairs. I think it's around 1,200 breeding pairs, maybe more in, um, on Torishima, the main breeding island. And then um, there's also a population on the Senkaku Islands, but we haven't had a biologist visit there in quite a while. So we're not exactly sure how many birds are breeding there. Um, definitely on the order of hundreds, as far as we can at least estimate from the last visit, and then thinking about uh, projections of the population given its growth prior to, um, you know, from previous visits. And then there's another um, population that is we, we reestablished on an um, island using translocations um, the, in the the Bonin Islands or the Agasawara Islands, and um, so that population there is very small. It's um, only about three pairs right now. Hmm. But um, it's wow. that part of the recovery objective of that species um, is where there's uh, is to have um, that the a third breeding island um, down in the Ogasawara, uh, the Bonin Islands. Yeah. To literally avoid putting all your eggs in one basket exactly yeah yeah what is the species that's in the galapagos i mean i, I remember seeing them when i was there but i can't uh, re recall the species so that is the uh, the waved albatross yeah so it's the same species or sorry same genus as our other north our north pacific albatross phobastria yeah so there's the yeah. two there's four total species within that genus, and they yeah, are all very like, similar in terms of which is why they are under this grouped under the same genus, but they're also very different than the other 
species of albatrosses and other genera. Um, and the wave albatrosses is fairly unique in that um, it um, has um, you know, breeding in a tropical island, which is highly unusual. Um, yeah. And yeah. also, but what it does, it has access to the um, Humboldt current, you know, the coast of Peru and Ecuador. Uh-huh. And right. so it um, that's ex- almost exclusively, other than some areas around the Galapagos, that's almost exclusively where the, that bird feeds is along that, um, you know, that upwelling zone that um, along There's a lot the of squid South, there. South America. A lot of squid there. Yeah, yeah, and anchovy yeah. and lots of other forage species. And that the, so the short-tailed albatross is, is fairly similar um, in that it breeds along a west, you know, along a boundary current too. So that at that margin of an ocean basin. So they're on the western side of the Pacific. And those those two species are quite interesting in that the um, they have very short foraging trips for an albatross. So, for example, the short-tailed albatross feeds uh, within the when they're rearing chicks within the most uh, Japanese and Russian waters of you know off the main island of Japan, Honshu, and then the um, the Kuril Islands of Russia. So they are they nest in these very productive you know um, continental margins along continental shelf yeah. regions. Um, which is primarily where these albatrosses feed along the continental. The Kuroshu current there, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So in those areas, uh, uh, you mentioned the streamers and the the you know the efforts to regulate fishing so that it causes less harm to these birds. Uh, but there, these birds don't respect international boundaries, and they're clearly fishing in areas where Russian and Chinese and Japanese fishing fleets are operating. Are they uh, taking steps to avoid killing these birds as well, or is that uh, yet to be worked on? Right. Yeah. So, so that's a, a very important part of the conservation for these species because it makes it so challenging is that um, it, you're dealing with multiple nations for when you're trying to conserve um, these birds at sea. And especially in the Southern Hemisphere, they're foraging in a lot of international waters, too. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, many, many countries that are foraging down or that, sorry, that are fishing in those areas. Um, um, so that's been a huge effort for BirdLife International and others over the past, um, you know, few decades um, of trying to coordinate with the different regional fisheries management organizations to um you know, to, to implement measures for con- conserving albatrosses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, apparently it's, uh, something is working because the, the short tails are so far at least have been increasing in number uh, at a s- slow but steady rate. So I guess there is some reason for optimism. Uh, uh, <laughs> was it, so uh, do, we, do we have a, uh... Scott Weidensall said uh, the, that that rarest of emotions in an ecologist, hope. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. The short-tailed albatross population has been increasing at about, you know, 6 to 8% per year, which is really quite good for a long-lived species. So what that right. at least lets us know is that they don't seem to be food limited out in the ocean. I mean, their population is much, much smaller than it used to be. 
um, but also that the what fisheries interaction is occurring um, is not enough to slow down population growth significantly. Do we know of any other populations of albatross that are increasing? Um, that's a good question. In the in the North Pacific, it's you know the laysan and blackfoot albatrosses population has been more fluctuating at uh, around its current level, um, and but one that has been increasing in in this area of the world, globe is the um, the population on off Mexico um, of laysan albatrosses um, that have started uh, breeding there. On Guadalupe Island, that population, I, yeah. I don't know a recent count, but it, it had been increasing pretty consistently um, over the years. It's still much sure. smaller, very, very small relative to the, you know, the Hawaiian yeah. Yeah. population. Yeah. Yeah. Are There's, there uh, laysons on any other islands besides Kauai uh, in Hawaii? Are uh, they on some of the nor northwest uh, atolls or anything? Yeah, absolutely. Midway. So the vast majority of them are in the northwestern atolls, especially Midway Island has, uh, you know, hundreds of yeah. thousands of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, yeah, that Hawaiian change extends all the way up. The Midway. whole story of Midway Island from World War II uh, into the second half of the 20th century is just staggering efforts by the U.S. military to wipe out the Laysan Albatross breeding colony there. They saw it as a threat to aviation uh, and they killed humongous numbers of them to no apparent effect right yeah and we um we actually they um and i can't remember the biologist's name at the time but they did some studies that we drew from that was very informative in terms of some of this translocation and hand rearing trying to establish a short-tailed albatross colony. So the first couple of years, we tested the techniques when we were, were working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Yamashine Institute for Ornithology in Japan. We tested these techniques on lace albatrosses, then black-footed albatrosses before they actually tested them on on the short-tailed albatross. But some of, there were some early studies in Midway related to um, yeah building the runway out there um, where they were where they were moving albatrosses. Uh, so moving them as adults, moving them as chicks at different ages of chicks so that and we could see the, um, we use some of that information. There have been no other studies to look at at what age you should move them, um, the chicks to where they might become, you know, be um, faithful to the site that you take them to. And one of those right. studies, it was clear that you move adults. They're going to move right back to where they you you got them from. So they're going to return to their colony, their natal, not their natal colony, but the colony where they had established breeding. Um, older age chicks, pretty much, they're going to re if you move them at an older age and try to get them to fledge from a new location, they're going to go back to their natal location. So the key is moving chicks when they're very young, and still the vast majority of them will um, return to the the um, their their natal colony, but um, at least a, a larger percent will return to the colony of their translocation site. Hmm. So they get imprinted on that location pretty much right off the bat. Yes. Pretty, pretty young. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And, then and like many like other birds, it's mostly the young individuals that when they're establishing a new, when they're establishing breeding for the first time, those are the ones that 
pioneer new locations. Once they're uh-huh. established breeding, they don't move that much unless the site is completely disrupted. If you move the chicks uh, to a new location, say off Midway Island, will the adults follow and take care of them in the new location or you have to move them after they're out of the adult care and you're caring for them yourself? Right, that's a good question. Uh, Generally, the adults do not follow because they don't know or understand what's going on. (laughs) You know, why all they know is they're disappeared. And um, nothing in their evolutionary history would prepare them for that. So in those cases, what they were doing is foster fostering the chicks. So moving the chicks and having them raised by another pair of albatrosses. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of gets to also the the reproductive success. You know, uh, the Hawaiian albatrosses, they only lay one egg a year, but then they don't always are not always successful raising that chick. In fact, in a given year, maybe 50 percent. 60% 60% mm-hmm. of the eggs laid actually fledge successfully or yeah. fledge a chick. And there are years yeah. when uh, the reproductive success is much, much lower than that, where almost all the birds fail. Um, mm-hmm. the, in contrast, short-tailed albatrosses have a remarkably consistent reproductive success of around 60 to 80% yeah. of the eggs yeah. later um, are fledged as chicks fledge from them. And I think that's solely because they're so close to that food source that they can easily buffer any changes in food availability and, and when chick needs. Uh, whereas it, the yeah, birds in, in Hawaii, Hawaii there's long yeah. distances. Yeah, in Hawaii there's an intertropical convergence that moves latitudinally, so that may affect food. Uh, absolutely. You know, Short term. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The birds, the Hawaiian yeah. albatrosses, take advantage of that convergence zone. So that's between, that's an area that they feed a lot, especially laysan albatrosses um, when they're not making the trips to the continental margins. Yeah. And that moves around depending on the cycles of broad scale cycles of uh, weather and the uh, climate in the North Pacific. Right. Right. And during the um, El Nino years, it tends to move closer to the Hawaiian islands, which oftentimes can be better <laughs> for the Hawaiian yeah. seabirds, um, even though yeah. it's worse for seabirds in some of the continental margin areas, like Alaska. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. We could talk for another hour about, or at least I could, about albatrosses. I find them endlessly fascinating, and there's so many little details of their lives that we could go into, but we are completely out of time for this particular interview. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Um, we don't have time, I think, to go into it here, but if you want to find out more information about albatrosses, uh, we will have some information on our website, and that is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. And if you just go there, uh, look for this show, and we'll have a link for the recording if you want to hear it again, and also uh, links for some more information about these remarkable birds. Dr. Syrian, thank you very much for joining us on the thank Ecology Hour. Thank you. It was a great hour. interview. Super. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.